The first energy indictments from earlier this week are so big, we're talking about them again today. The Statehouse team for Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer has been on fire exploring the angles of this thing, and we're going to talk about some of what they've written. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Laura Johnston, Courtney Estalfi, and Lisa Garvin. Let's get to First Energy. What did First Energy lawyers tell former CEO Chuck Jones when he was contemplating paying $4.3 million to Sam Randazzo, money that indictments say was a bribe? Laura, he really comes across like a moron. Yeah, apparently the lawyer said, you don't have to pay this. There's no contractual obligation. There's no invoice. There's nothing that says we owe Sam Randazzo money. But Everyone agrees on the money, the $4.3 million that was paid out on January 2nd, 2019. That was shortly before Governor Mike DeWine appointed Randazzo to leave the Public Utility Commission of Ohio after being lobbied big time for it. But they don't agree on what this was. First Energy calls it a bribe. They had their own agreement with prosecutors. They they said, yep, $4.3 million to Sam Randazzo. That was a bribe. But And what Attorney General Dave Yost is asserting in this indictment, and he doesn't have documentation to back it up, but they say that's going to come out in trial. He says that the lobbyist, Mike Dowling, one of the two executives, along with Chuck Jones, that's indicted, knew it was a bribe. And here's his quote. First Energy lawyers told Dowling that the company should not make the payment because they believed there was no legal obligation for the company to do so. Nevertheless, First Energy paid Randazzo point. $3 $3 million on January 2nd, 2019, without ever having received an invoice for the payment and without any work or consulting services being performed. Right. They had smart legal advice saying, don't do this. They did it anyway. Look, what comes across in all of the, the documents that have come out about this case since the very beginning is this arrogance of these executives that they could do whatever they want. Their communications that we've seen, their messages, they're just so full of themselves. We own the world. And to ignore legal advice like that and, and go forward you know, to engineer your filthy scheme it's arrogant. It's pure arrogance. And what was so special about yesterday is these arrogant men were brought low. They were in court yesterday. What did we see there? Well, they're going to have to wear ankle monitors <laughs> and they don't want to. But uh, Summit County, please, Judge Susan Baker Ross um, continued these bonds. They each posted 10% of a $100,000 bond. But she said they have to wear these monitors. Randazzo's attorney, Richard Blake said it was downright mean to make him wear that. This is, by the way, the same Richard Blake whose law firm in, did a co- corruption review of Cuyahoga County in 2009. I was like, oh, that there's that name again. Uh, but the judge rejected a request from the attorney general's office to make Jones and Dowling put up multiple pieces of property as collateral to keep them from fleeing. So I guess they don't think they're that big of flight risks, even though the AG's office is worried that Jones would flee to Cuba since he's living in Naples, Florida, and is getting treatment at the Cleveland Clinic in Florida. The, the idea of making them wear ankle bracelets seems like the right thing to do. These guys have money, and they could flee the country, and there are places they could go where they would escape justice. I think the prosecutors are right on the money saying, hey, we're worried about this because they have the means. The ankle bracelet makes that much more difficult. And then if they cut one of them off to do something, we'll hear about it fairly Mm -hmm. quickly. So I don't think it's downright mean at all. I think the judge is doing the right thing. Does anybody trust these guys to do the right thing? No. 
you know, and especially when we first heard about this Monday morning and they, the attorney general's office said they were supposed to turn themselves in, but hadn't, I was like, oh my gosh, are they on the lam? Like, are they, are these guys running from the law? They were just negotiating, but it already had gone through my head and, and wondered about it. And I agree with you on the arrogance. One of the stories we have up on cleveland.com has a photo of four of these guys standing golfing at the Greenbrier, which is an incredibly expensive luxury resort in West Virginia. They were there, the guests of a West Virginia coal company. So, I mean, they're buddy-buddy all in these pictures. It's It's very clear the lobbyists are, you know, mingling with the legislative staff and not even in their own state. So I, yeah, I agree with you. I would argue it's cathartic to see them finally, after all these years of knowing what is at stake here, to finally be standing before a judge, humbled and being forced to wear the bracelets. The citizens of Ohio deserve that imagery because they have skated for too long. Their company has admitted paying $60 million in bribes. They were at the controls. Ohioans deserve to see those photos. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, why should Mike DeWine be quite pleased about a handwritten note included in the indictments of the guys who were leading First Energy when the utility paid $60 million in bribes at the State House? Yeah, this note was introduced into evidence in the indictment that was handed down on earlier this week. Um, this note was written by uh, First Energy lobbyist Mike Dowling, one of the indictees, back in December 2018. He was writing it to summarize his conversation with uh, Governor DeWine advisor and First Energy lobbyist Josh Rubin, and he sent that letter to First Energy CEO Chuck Jones just before that December 2018 dinner with Governor DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Husted, where they were urged to hire Sam Randazzo as chair for PUCO. So it, it indicates that First Energy execs went out of their way to keep Governor DeWine out of the loop on House Bill 6 and Randazzo's appointment to PUCO. So uh, some of the quotes from the, the note, no paper, no sharing, do not, underline do not, say we're meeting with Randazzo afterwards, don't give DeWine anything in writing, and describe things like he doesn't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, if I were Mike DeWine, I'd be very pleased about that. We've said all along that Mike DeWine is an honest person, and we'd be shocked if he had been dirty in this scheme. I mean, he did appoint Randazzo, which is extremely questionable, but it's one thing to make terrible decisions. It's another one to be corrupt, and Mike DeWine being corrupt doesn't seem to fit. This reminded me of back in the Abscam case when Brendan Byrne was the governor of New Jersey, and there was a phone transcript where the bad guys, the mobsters, are saying, yeah, 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 don't even try with Brendan Byrne. You can't buy him. You know, you don't get those kind of moments with politicians very often, mm -hmm. but to actually have a note saying, yeah, let's keep all the bad stuff away from DeWine gives credibility to his statement from the beginning that he was not involved in any way in this torture scheme. Also, elsewhere in this indictment, uh, apparently Sam Randazzo told the governor's then chief of staff, Laurel Dawson, about the payment, the $4.3 million payment during Randazzo's job interview, but she never told DeWine um, that, yeah, so she never told DeWine. So there were two, you know, fronts here keeping the information from him. Yeah, why wouldn't you tell DeWine, though? I, that's the one yeah. I don't get. It's like you just found out a critical piece of information for the person that is going to lead the Utilities Commission. Are you that negligent? 
are you that delinquent that you're not going to tell the boss, hey, hey, we need to be careful here. They're paying that guy millions of dollars. I would love an explanation. Of well, that. there is. And I don't know if it's an explanation, but the, the charges also include a $10,000 loan from Randazzo to Laurel Dawson's husband, Mike Dawson, that he failed, that Randazzo failed to disclose. So the plot thickens. Yeah, I, this trial is going to be a field day of revelations, and it's going to—I'm glad it's in Summit County, because last time we had to spend a fortune to house Jake down in Cincinnati, at least it's local this time, and we'll be right there. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Greater Cleveland is on the move compared to Midwest cities of similar size. Courtney, where is it doing better than our competitors, according to a new report from the Greater Cleveland Partnership? Yeah, the good news here in this annual report from GCP is that the greater Cleveland region saw more business growth and more income growth than peer cities in in recent years. But there is also another side to this coin from this report. Our job growth here is stagnant. And that's what GCP found by comparing Cleveland to 10 other peer cities. They're, you know, Great Lakes region cities, Indianapolis, Columbus, Cincy, St. Louis, Louisville, Buffalo, Detroit, Milwaukee, Rochester, and Pittsburgh. And it's important to know this because this is how we're kind of measuring our progress on these important factors that Shaw said really kind of give us the broader picture of how Cleveland's economy is doing. And, you know, let's start with uh, measuring the local version of GDP here in greater Cleveland. It's up about 2% year over year. And Cleveland ranked fourth out of these 11 cities for our local GDP. And, and that's up from where we ranked over the past decade. We were six out of 11. So we're seeing, you know, some upward movement there. Now, when we're talking about real per capita income, we in Greater Cleveland saw that shrink by 3.4% year over year. And, you know, oddly enough, inflation saw like all the cities, it, it shrunk in all the cities. So it shrunk here less. And that's what placed us fifth out of 11th. And that is also an increase over the last decade where, you know, we were ranking at eight out of 11. So again, upward movement there. But jobs is really kind of where the kicker is and where the stagnation is. I, the GCP is, has been frustrated because they don't feel like people are recognizing the Cleveland story. Laura talked, I think it was last week, about how we are leader in IT jobs, but they're not forward facing. They're, they're more B2B. So even though we have a lot of them, we're not viewed nationally as a center of tech, even though we are. And I think in putting out this report, they're, they're trying to get the message out, hey, Cleveland's a pretty great place to come and do business. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of qualified people. Uh, and these rankings do matter. They came in to talk to the editorial board about the previous report, and they're, they're trying to show the forward movement. The big, the big number is the 10-year average, which takes longer to move, but they are looking like they're moving it. Yeah. You know, when we talk about job growth, that was something, you know, GCP weighed in on in the context of this report. When you look at that last decade span, we ranked seventh. And then year over year, we were also in seventh. So, you know, you want to see movement there over time. But the CEO of GCP said this lack of job growth in Cleveland isn't really a surprise. And he thinks it comes down not so much to businesses that 
aren't hiring. He thinks it comes down to not being able to find workers to fill open jobs. And he threw out tech, to your point, as an example. Shaw told us that Cleveland has 58,000 tech jobs here, but there's 13,000 open positions. So that's why GCP is working with other local groups to put together this Cleveland Talent Alliance. The goal here is to attract and retain working age adults who can fill these slots that are unfilled. Maybe they could offer some childcare. Well, but but you know, but beyond that, you if the GCP feels that way, why aren't they in Columbus telling Jerry Serino and company to stop trashing our college campuses? Because what what Serino's doing to college campuses is going to dissuade people from coming here and persuade Ohioans to leave the state. I, the, the the colleges are the training factory for these jobs. And while they're working up here to get people to come to Cleveland to take these jobs, we're, we're in the same time using, you know, dogma and, and ridiculous partisan nonsense to harm the colleges where we would be training these future workers. Yeah, I we mean, should... that's a fair argument. You, you talk about a lot of policies coming out of Columbus, and it's it's not too surprising to know that young people, up and coming workforce people are put off by that in the state. And I, I would think that the chambers of commerce around the state would get involved and say, cut it out. Stop stop doing partisan nonsense that's going to hurt the long-term economic development prospects of the state. A lot is going right, but what's happening in Columbus is going to turn a lot of things wrong. You're listening to Today in Ohio. First they made the move, now they might shortchange them on funding. Lisa, what's the latest challenge faced by the neutered State Board of Education? Yeah, the hits just keep coming for this group. They are asking lawmakers for $10 million as they consider cost-cutting moves that include staff reductions and increased licensing and other fees. But Senator Andrew Brenner, the Republican from Columbus, who's chair of the Senate Education Committee, says they're not going to get $10 million. He says they may need some several million, but I don't believe it's going to be $10 million. But in a September 2023 recording from a committee meeting, Brenner did acknowledge that there would be a shortfall, but plenty of funding would be available. But when he was questioned about that statement, he said, well, he didn't mean unlimited money. He says they have a revenue stream with their licensure fees, which does bring in about $11.5 million a year. The superintendent of public instruction, Paul Kraft, says they're avoiding layoffs by using their cash reserves, but those reserves will be gone by June of next year, and their deficit will probably balloon to about four to five million dollars in that time. They are currently not allowed to fill 10 open positions per the Office of Budget and Management, and they said they can save about four hundred thousand dollars by not filling some jobs, cutting travel, and limiting board meetings to once a month. So, yeah, and Brenner, you know, Kraft also said that raising license renewal fees would, you know, and these are paid by the teachers, not their employers. Kraft is worried it could exacerbate teacher shortages in recruitment, but Senator Brenner says he doesn't buy the theory of there's a teacher shortage in Ohio. <laughs> I guess numbers don't, I guess numbers lie. What, um, what, what you keep coming back to on what they're doing to the school board is the voters went to the polls and changed the constitution to empower a school board. And all they're doing to, to neutralize this thing flies in the face of what the voters did. The voters were upset about the way education was being handled in the state. 
and showed up in large numbers to change the constitution, to put this body in charge of it. And I, I just don't get how the current leaders can disembowel this thing so cavalierly when the voters are the ones that create it. Well, yes. And, you know, of course, the Department of Education and Workforce is the so-called replacement for the State Board of Education, but the answer to the governor and not the voters. Yeah. And, you know, given our current makeup of the Supreme Court, they don't base decisions on the law. They base it on partisanship. And so even though the Constitution clearly sets up this Board of Education, I could see our Supreme Court saying, yeah, yeah, don't pay attention to that. The governor wins. You're listening to Today in Ohio. It is surprising this does not happen more often. What is a good Catholic to do today, Laura? It's both Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday. On the one hand, it's a day for chocolate treats. On the other, it's a day for abstinence. What does reporter Mark Bona tell us? Basically, this is a little bit of a moral quandary. And he talked to some pastors and he talked to a theologian at John Carroll University about it who gave out chocolate hearts to his students on Monday so he wouldn't have to be conflicted today. But the last time this happened was 2018, not so long ago. But before that, 1945 was the last time the Ash Wednesday fell on Valentine's Day. But sorry, there is no dispensation from the bishop from fasting or not eating meat today. <laughs> last year, I seem to remember there was a dispensation for St. Patrick's Day, but apparently St. Valentine is not quite as important <laughs> as St. Patrick. So the Catholic News Agency actually put out a list of five ways to celebrate Valentine's Day on Ash Wednesday. They did not include chocolate or lobster, which, by the way, is allowed because it is not meat. But I did like one of theirs was do something together for others. So uh, instead of dinner, maybe you could go out and do something good for the community. Because I know we talk about people giving up things for Lent, and a lot of people give up chocolate or alcohol or you know, whatever, but you can also do something good, for, you know, to give back instead. And I would like to point out, and I did get an email from someone about our wake up newsletter today. I do realize that all Christians mark the season of Lent, the 40 days before Easter. It just seems to be Catholics that are really hardcore when they say you can't have the meat and you are supposed to be fasting today. So the Catholic Church, which is a big believer in growing families and having babies, is killing romance <laughs> on their most romantic day of the year. How does that play out? That doesn't seem to fit the I message I don't know that Valentine's Day feels romantic once you do have a family. Um, we did heart-shaped uh, waffles really? this morning. really? I disagree. I oh. always did Valentine's Day. Well, maybe it's because it falls between directly between my birthday and my daughter's birthday that is like just another day of the week like we'll wear hearts today it's a bit and, and you know yesterday obviously punchki day we we have a, we had a big on cleveland.com mardi gras so yeah this is a week of, of big celebrations and um and the 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 fasting a tip of the hat to mark boney he did just the right touch with that story you can find it on cleveland.com and you're listening to today in ohio a Cleveland suburb believes its tactics have dramatically reduced car crashes with deer. Courtney, how do the leaders there say they did it? This is very interesting. South Euclid began controlling its deer population, you know, three, four years ago using two different methods. It, it's finding that having two different kinds of tools in the toolbox is helpful when it comes to, you know, controlling its deer population. So on one hand, it uses sterilization and and 
to, you know, render female deer unable to reproduce. And it also calls deer. It, it, it's, it works with sharpshooters that are licensed and, and allowed to shoot within, you know, city limits to take out excess deer that are in South Euclid. And between these two efforts that have been going, you know, for a few years now, the South Euclid police chief, Joe Mays, says that, you know, this is showing good results and it appears that it's it's making a good impact on car crashes. So in that time, 300 deer have been killed out there. 122 have been sterilized. Then a few others have trackers placed on them. And you can really see the results uh, that these efforts are having on car crashes. Back in 2021, there were 67 deer crashes. In 2022, it dropped to 61. And then in 2023, it just plummeted to 26 crashes. So they like the results they're seeing out there. and, And they're also working with ODNR to kind of study what might be the more successful impact on on car crashes, whether sterilization is a better tool or calling is a better tool. So they're looking more into this. But the police chief told Cuyahoga County Council recently that this is really a first of its kind in Ohio. So it's a good way to measure what our options are here in increasingly urban and suburbanized environments. Deer can cause a problem where where humans are. I, I was surprised by multiple elements of the story. One, I was surprised that they had 60 deer car crashes in that suburb in a year because these are not high-speed suburbs. And I, I just was I'm kind of alarmed that you could have that many. We have deer in my neighborhood, and you generally see them, and you're not driving that fast, but 60 seems like a lot. But the other, the other surprise is we're always told deer don't know municipal boundaries. So if one suburb alone is doing it, it doesn't really make a difference that you really need a regional approach. The deer are always wandering around. But they're, they're claiming that by reducing the population that they see in South Euclid, it's had this effect. I just wonder if there might be other potential causes for that drop in accidents. You raise a good point with the regional issue here, but it's worth noting that the Ohio Department of Natural Resources tells us that Highland Heights, not too far down the road, is doing the same thing. So that could be impacting what's happening in South Euclid as well. If there is more of a concerted effort in the region, perhaps that does chip away and make a difference. I hate this. I know I'm in a minority. I, I think the deer wandering into our neighborhoods is a wonderful story of adaptation. We've taken up where they live, so they've moved into where we live. Monday, I had a family of three that spent two hours eating my ivy and my grass, wandering around my yard, and I just am charmed every time I see it. I get it. I get it. Most people want them gone. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Would he have appeased Germany if he had been in office in the 1930s? How did Senator J.D. Vance vote on the Senate's $95 billion aid package for Ukraine and Israel this week, Laura? Well, my mind in this question immediately went to Neville Chamberlain and the Sudetenland. So it's quite possible, and I hope we never get to that point again in history. But he voted against it, and most of the 29 senators who opposed this package were Republicans. Vance circulated a memo to colleagues that claimed it contained language meant to restrict former 
President Donald Trump from cutting off Ukraine aid if he wins the presidential election. He said on social media that buried in the bill is an, an impeachment time bomb for the next Trump presidency. So well, Vance supports sending aid to Israel, but he doesn't like sending $61 billion to Ukraine to fund a war he regards as, quote, hopeless and believes will further decimate the Ukrainian population. I have to think that's an unpopular opinion. I just I'm sad that we have not learned the lessons of history. The, the 1930s showed that when you have an aggressor in Europe, we, we should have stopped it, right? And well, that's what you have going on right now with Russia and Ukraine. And I just cannot understand how somebody like J.D. Vance doesn't get that. Because if you don't stop the aggressor, they keep going. And Europe could be turned upside down. The rest of the world recognizes that. They're all looking to us for leadership. And we have people like him that are isolationists that just don't want to do it. Yeah, I, I I think it's really troublesome and worrying. And and Senator Brown, um, obviously a Democrat, voted for it. He said it incorporated legislations he wrote, wrote called the Fentanyl Eradication and Narcotics Deterrence Act, Fend Off Fentanyl Act. And so that's going to be new sanctions and anti-money laundering penalties that targets illicit drug supply chains from China and Mexico. But other senators, Republicans basically say that this is status quo when it comes to the border. And so that's why they voted against it. Yeah. Not all Republicans, though. Mike Turner said released a statement. He's from Dayton saying that Russia's aggression against Ukraine poses a risk to the U.S. and its allies and the U.S. stands in full support of Ukraine. So there's obviously some difference of opinion, even among inside parties. But it's not really a difference of opinion. History shows what happens. We learn the lessons and how can we forget them? <laughs> You know, not a century later. It, it, I I agree, and there's so much more we could say about this. I mean, I on a, on my run, I sent you guys once a, a sign that was like, "Remember, fascism is bad." And huh. I I when I was in Europe in January, it World War II was so close to the surface there, and seeing so many things and drawing parallels, it is a scary time in history that people seem to forget. You know, the very. The, the long slog it took to get to World War II and all of the little things that happened that changed people's perceptions. I, but, but they're cozying up to Putin. I mean, Tucker Carlson cozied up to Putin. Donald Trump has cozied up to Putin. The guy is a despot and a dictator. Would they have cozied up to Adolf Hitler? Lisa? No, I was just going to say, maybe J.D. Vance is just trying to mollify Trump. I mean, everyone's saying that he's angling to be Trump's vice presidential pick. So, you know, and Trump just came out saying, you know, he doesn't care what Russia does to NATO countries. So maybe J.D. Vance is just parroting that line. Yeah, I don't. And isn't that terrifying? <laughs> I don't think that that no anyone's forgetting anything. JD Vance knows that he's siding with Putin. I mean, it's it's clear as day that the party or part of the party is just moving in that direction. Yeah, it's frightening. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The difference between urban and rural Ohio is a frequent topic of a conversation anymore, and one of the clearest distinctions between the two is education. Lisa, how educated are the residents of some of the urban suburbs compared to the rest of the state? It looks like all the smart people live in Pepper Pike, but <laughs> but yeah, this is Census Bureau data from their American Community Survey. They found that 32% of Ohioans have at least a bachelor's degree. That's a little below the national average, which is 34.3%. Number one in Ohio, Pepper Pike, 80.4% 
of people have at least a bachelor's there. That's in the top 100 nationwide. Four Columbus suburbs have 75% or more, Upper Arlington, Grandview Heights, New Albany, and Bexley. And then in Akron, the Montrose-Ghent area, that's 77% uh, uh, bachelor's or higher. And then Cincinnati, Montgomery, and Indian Hill. And they found that adults in Ohio, 25 or over with a graduate or professional degree is only 9.3%. But in Pepper Pike, it's 49.5%. But 91% of Ohioans have graduated high school um, in areas of residence, 5,000 residents and up. Um, the graduation rate from high school is 100% in Granville, which is Link- Licking County. And in Pepper Pike, it's 99.1%. It, it is a pretty stark contrast, though, that, that we have in the urban areas just a much higher level of education I wonder what can be done to try and, and bridge what is a growing gulf between well, the two. Well, but if you look at Cleveland, though, uh, Cleveland's not bad. I mean, almost 83% have graduated high school, 20.3% have a bachelor's degree or above, but only 8.2% have a graduate or professional degree. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cavs have been red hot this winter, owning one of the best records in the NBA. Courtney, how is the team making it easier for the financially challenged fans to catch some of the action? I love this idea. The Cavs are back on local TV waves. Five games this year are going to be broadcast on Channel 43, WUAB, and this is in partnership with Gray Television. And, you know, Channel 43 served as the Cavs kind of over-the-air TV home during several different periods over the last, you know, half a century. But the Cavs haven't been on Channel 43 since 2019. So I'm sure this will be welcome news to people who want to access local basketball without, you know, going through the hoops and buying the packages that are normally required. And, you know, we talked to Nick Barlidge of the Cavs, and he said the team's, you know, always evaluating opportunities to, to create good experiences for fans and, And given kind of the current media landscape, he said they're seeking to prioritize how they can expand their audience and expand it. It'll definitely be expanded. You know, broadcast channels can reach nearly five million households across Northeast Ohio and the rest of the state. Yeah, I, what this story reminded me of is there was a time when every one of these games was on the local UHF stations and it's just it's so long ago that that was the case. Now people have to pay to watch in pretty much any shape or form. Very cool that the Cavs are doing this and making it available. Yeah. Check out the schedule for when they're going to air. I know I'm going to tune in. I miss seeing basketball, so I'm excited to check it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I've mentioned a few times that we have a toll-free number, 833-648-6329 or 833-OH-TODAY for you to call up, leave messages, leave questions. We'll close out today with a thought somebody had about our discussion earlier this week on Brown Stadium. Uh, Hi, yeah. My name is Gus. I saw the article on Cleveland.com regarding the Browns' possible move. I think it's a good idea. I think that the current stadium uh, could be torn down and used as a, a multifunctional place, parks, recreation, facilities, and Cleveland tax dollars could better be used to fund that. The Brown Stadium could be very well built in Brook Park and subsidized by the Haslam's and county taxpayers and the county 
And I think that that would be a, a better solution for everyone. After all, they'd still be the Cleveland Browns. They'd just be playing a few minutes down the road. Thanks. Okay, that's it for this episode of Today in Ohio. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for listening.